the path of meditation is sometimes referred to as a sacred journey or the hero's journey. It's kind of in every culture, uh, part of the archetypal mythology of how we wake up, how we unfold. And, and in every culture, on every path, the hero always has to prepare in order to be able to encounter what's most intense and most difficult. And the preparing is what we're doing. It's this meditation practice. And then thrown in are usually some charms and invisible shields and so on. But basically it all comes down to refining what's already here, which is our capacity to pay attention. All training, all meditation training is that. No horse gets anywhere till he is harnessed. No steam or gas ever drives anything until it is confined. No Niagara is ever turned into light and power until it is tunneled. No life ever grows great until it is focused, dedicated, disciplined. And sometimes the words sound like they're Um, discipline and dedicate and focus sound like it's in some way containing our being. But in a way, the discipline, the focus, is about becoming present so we can free up our being. And it takes breaking some habits. Another description of spiritual life is that it's all about being in relationship. That we're always in relationship. Right now we're in relationship with our experience of these words and our bodies and what we ate today and we're continually in experience with our world and our inner life. And the question is, how are we relating? If I ask you this moment to sense, how are you relating right now with your inner experience? What do you have to do? Anybody? To answer that question, what do you have to do? You can just say things out loud. Think is one. Pay attention. We can't relate in a real way unless we're paying attention. When we think of our relationships with people that are dear to us, it takes attention. This is the kind of discipline that that quote referred to. If the relationship's going to have intimacy and substance, we have to really learn to pay attention because our habit is to take off. Our habit's to leave. In all our relationships, we have different ways of avoiding discomfort. And the given is, in every relationship, there's going to be an edge of discomfort. So in every relationship, we're going to have our own particular strategy for taking off, for shutting down, for avoiding, for denying, for pushing away, for judging. We have ways that we try to get away. We do the same thing in this inner journey. We all have these strategies for not being here. So deepening our relationship with ourselves and with life is really learning how to pay attention. Now, last week, the talk was really about setting the grounds of, of a friendly relationship with our 
being in our life. And I described how the grounds really have to do with being able to stop the action. If we're in this busyness of plowing through our life and we want to have some more intimacy with any part of life, we have to be able to stop the action. We have to be able to pause and just pay attention. I was walking and talking with a friend a few days ago and we stopped suddenly and we're looking at the river and I realized how hard it is to pause even in the best of circumstances. We're in this kind of body-mind that's leaning into what's next and there's a subtle sense of unease, like there's something more to do or something more to be. And even in circumstances where we're quite comfortable with another person or it's a quite lovely scene, it's very hard for us to just drop it all and really rest in the moment. This engine keeps seeming to drive us. Mostly this, this unease I'm mentioning is there's this kind of undercurrent that something's not quite right. It's interesting if you could be in, in any interpersonal situation and really stop the action in any moment, just kind of agree to just stop talking for a moment and say, okay, what's true now? Even in situations where we're fairly comfortable with another person, there's a slight dis-ease, like, are things okay? Are things going well? Am I being good? Is this person treating me right? We are insecure, so we're always trying to make ourselves more comfortable, and it's very hard to pause when we're with another person. You'll notice it's not much of our cultural convention just to stop and kind of say, okay, let's check in, right? We keep kind of moving and moving in our conversation and with our body. There's a gap in how we think it should be and how we experience things in this moment. Most of us have these ideas of how we should be and how our life should be. And if you notice, there's a kind of monitoring and it's very continuous that's measuring how am I doing, how's my life doing. And usually there's a gap. There's a gap between what we're sensing about who we are right now, you know, how we look, how we're behaving, if we're being good enough, and the standard we have imprinted in us. So we stay uneasy. We were, we're trying to in some way fix something. Last summer they gave out t-shirt awards in uh, the Washington Post and one of the t-shirts was, I have occasional delusions of adequacy. So it's difficult to realize that just being here, just sitting, or just listening, or just walking, or just washing the dishes, or just being in the bathroom, on the toilet, taking a shower, all these things are enough. That there's not somewhere else to be, something more to do. It's difficult for us to get that just this body in this moment, these emotions, is absolutely what we need to wake up, to be full. 
we are so in the habit of thinking that the good times in life are down the road or around the corner and that something's missing now. Is there anything missing in this moment, really? What do you have to do to even find out? So the sacred journey, meditation, is really not a journey that's going somewhere else. And that's probably the most um, vivid realization, that we're not on our way somewhere. Rather, we're learning to arrive. And in this learning to arrive, there's not a, a sense of trying to make anything different. Rather, we're learning to befriend what's here. We're learning to befriend the experiences that we're really in the habit of trying to sidestep. And this unconditional friendliness I think of as radical acceptance. And it's radical because it's not an idea that, yes, I should accept. It's in the body, accepting as in fully being here, experiencing what is. A cartoon on radical acceptance that a friend who's a psychologist has in her office. And it's got the psychologist in this picture is a little mouse inside his mouse hole. And the patient is a big, unhappy-looking cat. And the mouse is saying, don't worry, fantasies about devouring the doctor are perfectly normal. (laughs) Probably the most famous quote about radical acceptance was Carl Rogers when he said that it's not until I can completely accept myself as I am that I'm free to change. Now there's a trick here, because usually we are trying to accept ourselves so we can change. But it it can't be like that. It has to be accepting ourselves because that's just what we're doing. We're accepting. Our nature is change. If you really pay attention mindfully, who we are is a changing flow of experiencing. There's wakefulness, there's love, and this changing current of experiencing The act of acceptance frees us up so that we can continue unfolding in this flow. The challenge is that we're programmed to try to make things different. It's a biological thing we inherit, that we're trying to manipulate our world. And our practice in meditation is to begin to see that and relax the grip. Just arrive. See if you can even arrive this moment. Just drop it. Not putting forth a thought. Just simply resting in the awareness that knows sound, sensation. Just sensing what's here. Many people can identify with the myth of Sisyphus, the sense that um, this habit to keep pushing. There's some sense of striving or driving that there's not too much resting, sitting back. 
And if we're hooked on wanting things to be different, trying to improve ourselves or the people that we're with, there is this strain, this feeling of pushing the boulder. So there's actually a radical and different relationship we're beginning to learn as we practice meditation, moment by moment. And that is to simply be with what's happening. And I sometimes think of it like spiritual reparenting. Because the way our parents brought us up, and it's not their fault, it's the way the culture kind of conditions things, we are given messages to be different. We're given messages to control ourselves and manipulate ourselves and contrive our behaviors so that they conform with outside standards. It's all our training. So that's the parenting. The parenting is this message to be something other than how we are. Spiritual reparenting is offering ourselves a profoundly different message, which is really that the life of this moment is okay. Just imagine that, if you could simply accept yourself exactly as you are. So however it is this moment, whether you're bored or interested, tired or peaceful, hungry, uncomfortable, that in some deep way there's this awareness that says it's okay. You know, not, that there's not making ourselves wrong. To be without anxiety about imperfection. This is radical. This is the spiritual reparenting that actually sends a message that lets us relax the grip. Now, meditation training, the formal practice that we do here, is training in just that. We use the attention to the breath to begin to quiet because we're all so lost in these mental movies that we don't have a a chance for kind of touching in and sensing what's true right now if we can't quiet the mind some. The idea is not to get rid of thinking. I mean, thinking like the production of hormones and blood and everything, it's just natural. It's to be in relationship with thoughts so we're not lost in them. There's an awareness of a bigger sense of being. So in meditation, we're cultivating this attention that can be quite healing, that can give a different message to our inner life. And a useful way that I've been exploring in my own practice, and you can see it in all the traditional training, of kind of balancing how to pay attention, I've been describing as the attention of a wide-angle lens and a kind of more telescopic lens. And we need both if we're to be present. In any relationship, we need both. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me describe each one a little. See if you can kind of, as you, as you listen to this, sense what it means to you. The wide-angle lens. This is the quality of awareness that's openness that includes the big picture. This is the awareness that when we're stuck and riveted and obsessed and possessed is absolutely essential to regain a sense of what's real. So the wide-angle lens, when we pause and we're feeling stuck, it's really a remembering of what else is here? 
If we have a black-white and we're just focusing on the black, what's dark, what's wrong with me, remembering the beings that love us and appreciating us, appreciate us, or remembering the world out there, the trees and the winds and the clouds, just a bigger awareness of what's true. Many, many people that I know got not only hit by the flu this season, but went down with it, went back to work for a little bit, and then went down for a second round. And what happened is people would tell me that story, and then the next person that I'd speak to, who would be on their second round, when I let them know how many others had gone through the same thing, there was this real sense of relief. There w- and it wasn't just misery loves company. There was a sense of, ah, so in the bigger world, this is just kind of a biomedical pattern. It's not personally me, you know? And there's something about knowing the truth of what's really happening in a bigger realm that gives us a perspective and takes the heat off of us. Okay, I don't have to feel like I'm being lazy or indulgent for staying in bed for a few more days or that I didn't take care of myself well. It's just a virulent bug. It's the same thing with the Tonglen meditation. For many of you that know this, we, in the Tonglen practice, we, we feel what's difficult and we offer it prayer and care. And then the next part of Tonglen, which is so beautiful, is let's say we were reflecting on a feeling of um, being deficient inside ourselves. Then we open up the awareness to sense all the people that we know and all the people everywhere that struggle with the same sense of not being worthy. (coughs) And there's something about invoking this bigger world of beings that struggle with the same thing that gives a perspective that's incredibly useful. (coughs) So when we're in sitting practice and we're feeling locked in, it can be really powerful to use this wide-angle lens to open our eyes, to listen to sounds, to remember the bigger world. A friend of mine was describing her birthing. Her son's now about seven, but she's a Vipassana teacher, and she went into birthing with this idea of, well, you opened the pain and you don't resist the pain, you feel it fully, which are some of the instructions for Vipassana. It was after the third contraction that she decided that was all bunk. (coughs) And luckily there were some Lamaze people there that showed her how to pay attention to her breath and really displace her attention from the pain somewhere else. She needed a resting place. She needed something more and different, something other than the pain, in order to regain a sense of balance. It's the same thing in Vipassana. Ultimately, we want to open fully to what's here. And there are times that we need to find a place of peace, of more spaciousness, and to intentionally redirect our attention to the breath, to the sky, to sounds. Another friend of mine was describing how she had been really struggling a lot in the last few months with depression, And her first inclination was, 
again, Vipassana style, to feel fully the intensity of angst. And she found that she was really sinking, really, really sinking in it. And that rather, for her, she needed to be outside as much as possible, moving and breathing, listening to sounds. This is the same thing. This is the wide-angle lens. It's not riveting ourselves on what's right here and now, but rather including what's here and now, but in terms of a much more broad frame of reference. Now, just to say that the big picture, the wide-angle lens, is not in order to avoid or deny the truth of what's happening. Former NBA center and coach Johnny Kerr said his biggest test as a coach came when he coached the then-expanding team, the Chicago Bulls, and his biggest player was six foot eight inches, Erwin Mueller. Is that the way you say it, Mueller? We had lost seven in a row, and I decided to give a psychological pep talk before a game with the Celtics, Kerr said. I told Bob Boozer to go out and pretend he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Jerry Sloan to pretend he was the best defensive guard. I told Guy Rogers to pretend he could run an offense better than any other guard, and I told Irwin to pretend he was the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the game. We lost the game by 17. I was pacing around the locker room afterward, trying to figure out what to say when Mueller walked up, put his arm around me, and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. So we need to be aware of the big picture. And as we know, we need also to be aware of the waves, what's going on in the moment. This is Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They went out on a camping trip, pitched their tents, and put out their blanket rolls. Went for a walk. When night fell, they came back. They lay their, um, their bags into, in their bags, and they were looking up at the sky. Holmes asked Watson what he saw and what he made out of it. Watson described the heavens with millions of stars and replied, astronomically speaking, I see millions of constellations, galaxies, stars thousands of light years away. Theologically speaking, God is everywhere beyond a human imagination, and we are small. Meteorologically speaking, the universe is ever-changing, coming from the unknown, speeding past and disappearing again. Holmes replied, for me, I see that someone has stolen our tent. So, wide-angle lens and being here with what's specifically happening. And the danger and shadow of the wide-angle lens is just that, that we will really use it to avoid what's challenging, the waves and experiences of this moment. So now we move to the telescopic, okay? when we pay attention to the breath and the instructions are to notice it precisely, just to notice the beginnings and the endings, to feel very precisely where a knot is in our body, where there's tension. We're developing this this capacity to connect in a very defined way. We need the telescopic lens for whenever we're spaced out disconnected, numb. And because we spend a lot of our time trying to get away from difficult experience, this already present capacity, we all have the capacity to connect, we need to cultivate. 
So you'll find when we do meditation here, we're developing both. Pay attention specifically to this breath, to this sensation, to these sounds, and sense in a very receptive attention how it's all happening, wide angle and precise. Now the challenge, as I mentioned, with the telescopic lens is that we avoid being in the moment because there's some sense that life is uncomfortable and will be too much, that we can't handle it. I love this description. There was a disciple who was asked what was most important to his teacher, who was a great Hasidic master, and the disciple responded, whatever he happened to be doing at the moment. So the telescopic is this training, what is really true this moment? And the only way to really connect with the moment is to have a genuine quality of interest. There's nothing that goes on in our hearts and our bodies that doesn't have the possibility of waking us up fully to who we are. All the different waves of emotion are made of the same substance as enlightened mind. They're contracted, but their essence, like a wave is made of water, is who we are. So when we get angry, to be too caught up in thinking, ah, the big picture, just a wave of experience and not pay attention because we feel like we're not a good person if we get angry, or to be afraid and say, yes, a wave in the ocean, and then try to ignore it, disconnects us from where the aliveness is. Because in the very midst of anger, there's a certain discriminating wisdom that if we can tap into, can really guide us. And in the midst of fear, there's an intelligence that can guide us. And in greed, there's a longing that if we really pay attention to, can wake us up to the depth of who we are. Every wave of experience can teach us, but the trick is how to relate to it without getting possessed. I love this uh, poem. It's by David White, and it's called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So because we are on this path of becoming whole and becoming free, gradually what we find is that even when it's uncomfortable or painful, like grief, like anger, like fear, our longing to be awake is strong enough that we're willing to feel it, 
willing to be with, with what's there, with that more telescopic connecting kind of energy. There's an interest because something in us intuits that no matter what wave is arising, it's a messenger from beyond. It can teach us who we are. So we develop this real curiosity that we relate to our inner life, and this is in contrast with parents who wanted us to be this way and not that way, with a genuine interest in however it is, really wanting to know, okay, so what's happening now? There's this interest. Joanna Macy uses a legend from the Holy Grail, a legend of Parsifal, a knight from the round table that really beautifully describes the power of this kind of curiosity. So let me tell you this story. Now Parsifal, this knight, goes off on a quest and he finds himself in the middle of a devastated area where nothing's growing. And this is the inner or outer wasteland. It's the place of woundedness. He gets to the capital, that's the castle of the Fisher King. Now, rather than being upset about this wasteland, the Fisher King's just kind of lying there, and he's very sick, but he seems to not care. And the people around, like the land, were just not, they weren't saying, oh, this is terrible, let's do something, but kind of going around business as usual, as if everything was normal, right in the middle of this wasteland, just living habitually. They were behaving as if they were under a spell, which they were, and which we are often. Now what's interesting is Parsifal had been warned beforehand that there was a spell and that he could break it. And it wasn't by being smart or by being particularly brave or trying to fix anything that the way to break the spell was to ask questions. But he was young, and as the story goes, his mother told him it was rude to ask questions. So he didn't. He saw the Fisher King. The Fisher King was lying there, weak and wounded and totally oblivious, and he didn't ask anything. And nothing happened, and he went on. But as it happens, when you fail a test on the mythic journey, you end up being confronted with it again. So this witch-like sorcerer, a wise woman, Kundri, that he met castigated him for not having the common compassion to ask the people questions. So Parsifal has to go back to the wasteland and he goes back to the castle of the Fisher King and without even breaking his stride he walks right up to where the king is lying wounded and oblivious on his couch and he kneels down and then he pauses and he asks, Oh my Lord, what alathy? And at that moment The color comes back into the king's cheeks and he stands up. Somebody cared enough to ask. It's like saying, what's the matter? How are you feeling? How is it with you? The question is a communication of care. It's a question that if we ask someone else and we're asking from our heart, invites out what's difficult. And so many of us know that experience of being with someone that cares and having something bottled up or tight in our hearts and if somebody really asks and you know they're not just saying, hey, how's it going? The question is really a way, it kind of frees us to let truth be revealed because it's going to be held in a place of kindness. 
So in relating to our inner life, in bringing this more telescopic, precise, connecting energy, we can be curious. We can really stop at any moment. And this is one of the most powerful practices in Buddhist meditation. And simply ask, okay, what's happening this moment? What's true now? What is this? And what's really happening right now? Because when we ask the question, it directs our mind to pay attention, which is the grounds of intimacy. You are the unchanging awareness in which all activity takes place. To deny this is to suffer, to know this is freedom. It is not difficult to realize this because it's your true nature. Simply inquire, who am I? And watch carefully. Who am I? If we just at any moment say, who's listening right this moment? Who's seeing? Who's thinking? If we ask that question and then really just pay attention, not analytically, just listen and feel into what's true. That very nature of asking and paying attention connects us back in a very engaged way with the flow of the moment. Now in awakening, in all meditation practice, We need both these qualities of awareness. We need both the sense of perspective, space, and contact. And you can see how it's true in any relationship with someone that you're involved with in day-to-day life. Take, for instance, um, with with your child or with a partner, if there's conflict and there's anger, and what's needed in order to have some healing. When there's conflict, when there's anger, we definitely need to have some of the big picture, a sense of the space and some perspective and eventually some humor and a remembering that love is here even though we're really at odds and clashing. And we need to be able to contact the actual wave of hurt, of fear, and of anger. We have to be real. We have to feel what's there. Because, as I mentioned, built into that is some intelligence. There's a reason we're wired to get angry. There's a reason we're wired to have fear. It's a a request for us to pay attention. But to pay attention in a wise way, to not get possessed, to not believe the stories we're telling, that he said this and she said that and I didn't do that, so it's to get out of the storyline and in an honest, kind way, connect. This is the telescopic but keep a perspective, keep a sense of the space it's happening in. You can see it with anger and conflict, and you can see it in a new love relationship. You know, with new lovers that are infatuated, you certainly eventually need to have space to see what's going on, to see the patterns, to see how it fits into the big picture, to stay connected with the rest of your social network. You need the big picture. And need to connect directly with the waves of loving, where the vibrance and vitality and energy is. If it's only the waves of intensity, there's going to be blindness and grasping. 
But if we're too spacious and removed, it, it lacks life. We need both. One of my teachers, uh, described, a Tibetan Rinpoche, describes this awareness that already is present in all of us, but that we're cultivating as like a sunlit sky. And the sky has both a quality of spaciousness and also cognizance, brightness. And you can't consider the sky without both qualities. You can't imagine sunlit sky without the space or without the light. And so it is with awareness that these interdependent qualities of of knowing what's true, that kind of brightness of mind, and this quality of openness come together. But I invite you as you practice to sense that there's an art to balancing them. And if you find you're very stuck, your mind's very obsessed, you're feeling small, to then in some way open the awareness, remembering the sky and sounds and feeling your whole body and coming out of the story that keeps us so enclosed and trapped. If on the other hand you're drifting and spacey and disconnected, to use the qualities of precision to ask what is true now and look, pay attention, be fully here. This is exactly what the Buddha did in this in the archetypal part of his myth of sitting under the Bodhi tree. There was this pausing. Then there was this kind of open attention and all the arrows of Mara came, all the waves of experience. And there was this quality of both openness, receiving them and very specifically touching them with awareness, with his hand. Precise touching with what's here, but an open quality of awareness. Ultimately, when we cultivate both these facets of being, there's room for all of life, and life is lived fully. There's a um, story, just as part of closing, I'd like to share with you. My sense is that we're all, in some ways, learning how to tolerate what feels intolerable, open to the intensity we've shied away from, really open to life and death. And as long as we're running from what's difficult, we can't live fully. So we're learning how to die. We're learning how to let changes roll through. And that the way that we learn is by again and again opening the space of awareness and still touching what's here. And we're doing it again and again in little ways, in big ways. We do it when we're sitting and we feel a pain in the leg and we don't want to go into judgment and reactivity, so we find a space, but we keep feeling what's there. And we do it in bigger ways when we're finding that we're judging someone and we don't want to be caught in the storyline so much. So we say, okay, so what's really true? And underneath that judging, find that there's some insecurity or hurt and get more real with that. So these qualities we use in opening to the difficult but smaller waves day to day and also to the bigger ones of finding that our bodies are going and our minds are going and that we lose the beings we love. Some years ago when I was um, at a retreat teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, one of the 
students that I was seeing in interview was probably at mid-stages of Alzheimer's and he came into the interview and was kind of describing what was going on, how he would have real big gaps. He'd be talking and there would be this gap and he'd have no idea what's going on. And all sorts of people were telling him parts of his life that were absolutely erased from his memory. And he told me this and he wasn't telling me it, it wasn't quite cheerful, but there was a sense of humor at some parts. And he seemed at ease. And so I asked him, I said, you know, um, how is it that you're relating to this um, seemingly without, without a lot of angst? And he said, you know, it's sad and I hurt sometimes, but I don't think anything's wrong. I don't think anything's wrong. And that was really powerful for me because I realized how the difference between discomfort and suffering is this sense that something's wrong. You know, pain is a given, but how do we relate to it? He went on to describe to me one of the early experiences he had when, with the symptoms really starting to pick up speed. And he said that he was, this man has meditated for years and years, which accounts a lot for why he had space for the deterioration of his own mind. I should put that out there. He, I think he had meditated for probably 20 years before starting to get symptoms. But um, he said, at the, and he was going to give a talk to a group of people about meditation. And he showed up at the center where we were supposed to talk, and he had done a lot of prep. And everybody was silent and sitting, kind of meditating and waiting. And he went blank. And, you know, there were a hundred or so people there, and all he, he was frozen. He was he absolutely had no idea why he was there, what he was supposed to say, nothing. Everything was gone. So what did he do? He just started naming what was happening out loud, frightened, paralyzed, ashamed, shaking, confused. I feel like I'm dying. You, know, you just name it, and he slower than I'm doing it, and he'd pause and just feel what was there. And you had the sense that he was not just observing something from a distance, but nor was he completely lost. There was this real courage of, okay, so this, and this, and this. And it went on for a while, and then he just stopped and looked at everybody, and he said, I'm sorry, it's, that's all. And there were tears in the eyes of so many people in the room, and, and several came up afterwards and told him that this was the most beautiful dharma they had ever received, because it was living dharma. And somebody was actually in the process of, of facing these, these really huge waves of, of loss, of life-death, and actually kind of modeling that courage to, okay, so it's this, and it's this. Our most profound refuge is awareness. It's not some guru out there. It's our natural capacity to pay attention, to be awake, to care. That's our refuge. Zen monk was on his deathbed and the students came up to him and said, but master, master, you haven't written your death poem yet. You know how in in the Zen tradition the masters write a death poem right before they die. And he says, oh, and he sits up and he grasps the brush and he madly begins his calligraphy of the verse and then he lies down and dies.
And here's the poem. Birth is thus, death is thus. Verse or no verse, what's the fuss? (laughs) True story. (laughs) So sometimes it's described as grace. It's grace in the sense that it's our capacity. It's already who we are to wake up. And there's a quality that we know of that the more intentional we are about it, that we care about waking up and that we align ourselves, that we focus, that we attend, we create an environment for it. Close with a uh, poem from Rumi and then we'll just sit with each other for a bit. This is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly, he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him. And he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too. The fruit, the trunks. A growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. So... We'll sit quietly for a few minutes, do a brief guided meditation that helps to invoke these two qualities of awareness. If you've been sitting very still and you want to just stretch your legs for a moment, uh, please do so, and then come sitting still again. coming to rest in this moment by just simply feeling what's true. Just be intimate with the breath, with sensations, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. Aware of your mood. just like the man I told you in the story, just noticing, kind of a a naming and a feeling what's there. So there's an inclusive kind of awareness. Inclusive yet immediate. to more fully establish the sense of openness, the space of sky. Begin to follow just the out-breath so that your awareness rides the out-breath, senses the out-breath in a very immediate way. And when the in-breath comes, just rest in awareness. Don't do anything. So in this part of our practice, just to let your mind and body and awareness follow the out-breath out, dissolving outward, dissolving into sound and space. It's as if 25% of the attention directly connects with the sensations of the breath. And the rest of the awareness is just open, inclusive. We follow the out-breath as if you're 
pushing a doorbell. That's the out-breath. And then just waiting so that while the breath is coming back in, there's no intentional doings. Again and again, letting the mind-body awareness follow the out-breath out, just dissolving outward, mingling in an open space of sound and awareness. following the out-breath out, just suspending the being in that openness, the world of sound and activity happens inside that awareness. If a thought arises, to name it, thinking, thinking, And then opening again to sense the bigger space it's happening in. Following the out-breath and letting go again into open space. It can help to imagine the spaciousness of sky, to hear the furthest sound, and sense the awareness as bigger, more open, more spacious than even that. Continue following the out-breath. But as you breathe in, be aware of the belly, and the softening the belly, so that you breathe out and sense letting go into sound and space. And as you breathe in, aware of the sensations of your body suspended in this open space. following the out-breath, sensing the openness, breathing in and in a very immediate way, sensing the vibrations and tingling of the body in this openness. For some, it can help with the in-breath to soften the belly or to imagine a light tapping at the navel maintaining a sense of openness and embodied awareness.
last few moments, breathing out and sensing spaciousness, breathing in, sensing exactly what's true in the midst of this spaciousness. We close with the prayer of loving-kindness, just taking a moment to sense the life, the inner life, and offering whatever prayer feels real to you at this moment, to your own being. sincerity and care, other beings of your life, just taking a moment to let whoever comes to mind appear, offering them prayer of care. sensing the beings that are in this space with you tonight. And then that experience of being at the hub of a wheel spokes in all directions, all our relations, the beings we know that we don't know. Stop from your prayer for all beings everywhere. and letting this heart of compassion be carried through the sound current of OM as a way of closing, just as we...
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.